So we are in week six of our series, Dear Church, where we're looking at Revelation chapters 1 through 3. And we're looking at the fifth letter that Jesus wrote to his church through his servant John. One of the things that's easy to forget when we're studying the book of Revelation is that this was written to real people in a real time, at a real place, and it really meant something to them. They had their own history and their own concerns. And in this portion, Jesus is writing to a church in the city called Sardis. And Sardis uh, was founded about, I think, in like 7th century B.C., And Sardis was famous for being a a city that was known as the haves and the have-nots. There was very wealthy people and there was very poor people. And they were very divided. In fact, they were literally divided because the city had a lower part and a higher part. It was on a mountain. And in the lower part of the city, at the bottom of the mountain, was where all the poor people lived. And on the top of the mountain was where the wealthy lived. And so there was a little divide in Sardis between the haves and the have-nots. And you wanted to be up top with the wealthy people because not only was that where the best restaurants were and all the good schools were, it's because that was the safest place to be. They were on a mountaintop that uh, their city was protected by three precipices surrounding them that were about 1,500 feet high. And the only way you could get to the higher city was from the south side of the city up a gradual slope. And so the the military believed all they needed to do was protect just one side of their city because who could climb up this uh, 1,500-foot cliff and get to us and attack us? What What kind of army could do that? But in 211 B.C., or 214 B.C., Antiochus III attacked the city, and the city was taken, sacked, and conquered because they were attacked at their supposed strength of the city. Somebody, one soldier, climbed up this cliff, walked into the city because um, Sardis was so confident that no one could attack them from those sides, they didn't even have the gates closed. They didn't have any guards there. And so this person walked right into their city, walked right into the gate, walked to the south gate, and opened it from the inside so that the army could come in, and Sardis was conquered. What's probably most remarkable about this is the exact same thing happened to that city 300 years before. Exactly. Back then it was a king named Cyrus who came in and it was the same thing. One person came up through the city on the other side and got into the city. And and it just kind of reminds you that if you don't learn from history, you're bound to repeat it. What's interesting about Sardis is they had the reputation of being impenetrable, but they were easily defeated because they couldn't see their own weakness. In fact, the place where they thought they were strongest became the place that they fell. And when Jesus writes this letter to the church that's in the city of Sardis, the church actually has a lot in common with the history of the city because the church thinks they're okay. They think they're strong, but they're at great danger. And Jesus has real concerns for this church. And he has real concerns for you and me because we can be the same way. You know, we all have blind spots in our lives, things that we think we're good at, but maybe we're not, or things that we look back at later in life and we don't see it till it's too late. And then those moments are marked by regret and pain and, and, and things we wish we hadn't done. We, we excuse our own behavior or the behavior in our life that most needs to be changed and challenged is probably the behavior in our life that we're most uh, defensive about. We don't want anybody talking to us about what we find is that often the greatest danger to us is an area of our life that we feel actually strongest about. And that's what's happened in the history of Sardis, and that's what's happening to the church in Sardis. So let's see what Jesus has to say to them, beginning in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 3. It says, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him, he's introducing himself, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. 
I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your works, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. As we get to the fifth letter here, the letter to the church in Sardis, what's probably most jarring as we read this is that in every other letter so far, Jesus has had something good to say to the church first. And then he's had some concerns. But with Sardis, he has nothing good really to say to them. He says, I know your works. And he says, you have a reputation of being alive. And I was thinking about this, that this week, and I thought, you know, we live at a time and in a society where many people would settle just for having a good reputation. As long as people think well of me, that's all that matters. Even if there's a gap between our reputation, who people think we are, and our reality, who God knows we are, as long as people think we're okay, who cares who we really are? And we kind of live in a world right now that's all about reputation and putting your best forward out and using social media to sort of pr- promote the best version of yourself. And many people would settle for reputation, but God looks past reputation to reality. Who are you really? And this church had a reputation. They were known all over as being a great church, but Jesus saw past the reputation, and he said, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. You're the exact opposite of what everybody thinks you are. As I was thinking about that verse this week, my first prayer was this, God, let it not be true of me. Let my reputation, what people think of me, exceed who I actually am. Let, the, let the, what people think of me actually be who I am. Let there be integrity in my life. I'm not talking about perfection, right? But I'm talking about integrity, consistency, that there's not this alarming gap between what people think is true of us and what is actually true of us. But then I also thought this, God, let it never be true of our church, never true of Trinity, that you might never say of us, you have this reputation of being this sort of place, but you're something completely opposite. God, protect us from that and keep us from that. And and when John writes, you have a reputation of being alive, but, the dreaded but, he chooses the strongest word possible there in the Greek. It's a radical sort of jarring, get your attention word, but you are dead. And then Jesus says something very interesting. He says, wake up. Now, I think it's interesting because you don't tell dead people to wake up. <laughs> you don't tell dead things to wake up. And it almost seems like Jesus isn't tracking his own line of thought. Jesus, you just said they're dead, and now you're telling them to wake up. Come on, make up your mind. Are they dead or are they not? But then I thought of this story in the Gospels. Maybe you remember this story where Jesus was on his way to help someone whose daughter was sick. And uh, he got interrupted on the way by a woman with an issue of blood who ended up being healed also. And then when he, by the time he got there, they said, don't bother Jesus anymore because your daughter is, has died. And Jesus walks into this room of grief and sorrow. And this little girl, I forget how old she is, maybe 12 years old, she's lying in her bed and she's dead. And Jesus walks up and he takes her hand. And just as you or I would gently sort of wake our child up for the morning, come on, Caroline, school, let's get up. That's what he does. And what's so amazing about it is we get a glimpse of the power that God has. Listen, only God says wake up to a dead person. (laughs) Only God has the power to say wake up to death. Only God can look at the dead areas of your life and say wake up. 
Only God can look at the dead relationships in your life and breathe life and bring hope. And Jesus walks into this room of death, and I love it because he doesn't roll up his sleeves. He doesn't, he doesn't call down power. He doesn't conjure up magic. He doesn't work himself into an emotional frenzy. He doesn't even scream. He doesn't raise his voice because he has real power. And Jesus has so much power that he can reach into our greatest enemy of death and pull us out just like you're gently waking up a young child. And Jesus in this moment is giving hope to the church of Sardis. He's saying, you're dead, but guess what? I don't have to resuscitate you. You just got to wake up. And in my power, you can wake up. Jesus says that I found your works, that they're not complete. It wasn't that the church wasn't doing any works. They were doing works. We know they were doing works because Jesus said, I see your works. And you have a reputation. But the works were not complete. Now, why weren't their works complete? I think back to our first letter to the church in Ephesus where Jesus warned them and said, you have good works, but you've lost your first love. And maybe that's at play here as well. But there's another clue. In verse 1, when Jesus introduces himself, he says, I'm the one who has the seven spirits. That's a weird phrase, but most commentators think what Jesus is referencing is not seven different spirits, but seven is the number of perfection that Jesus is referencing. I'm the one who has the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. And so when Jesus says your works are not complete, what I believe he's saying is the problem with your works is that you're doing them in your own strength and in your own energy and you're not relying upon the Holy Spirit. And so I'm the one who has the Holy Spirit to bring your works to completion by giving you the power of the Holy Spirit to serve me and live for me. And it's the same Holy Spirit that will wake up the dead. And this is what Jesus, and then Jesus invites them. And I love this invitation. He says, remember what you have received and repent. And any time we read in these letters what you have received or hold fast to what you already have, Jesus is always referencing the gospel. Remember the gospel. Remember what I've done for you. Remember what is now true of you because of who I am and who I say you are. And the number one problem that Christians have in our lives is gospel forgetfulness. That we forget how true it is what Jesus has done for us and how it should change our hearts and change our lives. And so Jesus invites them to remember and receive and repent. Repent is turning away from lesser loves and going back to Jesus, our true love, and seeing his worth and his beauty and who he is. And then he gives them a warning and he says, if you don't do this, I will come like a thief. And that was a painful phrase for him to use because every person would have thought of the history of the city who two times had fallen because a thief had walked into their city and they didn't know that the thief was there and they fell. And what Jesus is saying is if you won't remember and receive and repent, you're going to fall and you're going to be destroyed from the inside out and you'll never see it coming because it'll be like a thief. So it's pretty bad news so far, right? I mean, this is not exactly heartwarming and uh, super exciting. But what I love about this letter to the church in Sardis is Jesus ends with some good news, okay? Let's, let's get to the good news. Uh, here comes some hope. Verse 4. Yet, I love this, yet you still have a few names in Sardis. What Jesus is saying is not all of you are dead. There's still some of you who are faithful to me. And what we're reminded of here is that no matter what's happening, there's always a remnant. There's always some. And Jesus is always moved by the few who are faithful instead of completely giving up by the many who are unfaithful. As long as a few are faithful, Jesus is moved and he will call us his church. He says there are a few names and stars, a few of you who have remained faithful, a remnant who still serve me. And then he goes on to describe them. People who have not soiled their garments. It's kind of a funny phrase. But what they mean is that they haven't made themselves unnecessarily dirty and they haven't haven't covered themselves in filth and sin. They've not 
not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, kind of continuing this, this metaphor of purity and clean garments, for they are worthy. And then he says, the one who conquers, the one who endures, the one who serves me will be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so for the rest of our time together this morning, the next 15 minutes or so, I want to just show us three things that Jesus does for us, even in our deadness, even in our sin, even when we are not serving him the way we should. Here's three things Jesus wants us to remind us, remind us, three amazing things that he does for us. And the first thing is this, Jesus stands right for you. He said, I will clothe you in white garments. When I was in high school, uh, I went to a small private school in the city of Syracuse called Faith Heritage. And I was on a, a singing ensemble. And we used to travel and go to different churches and sing. And they had all of us uh, wear um, the same basic thing. And so all the boys wore white dress shirts and ties and khaki pants. And we'd get up and we'd sing some songs. And when we go to these churches, we often would have to go early to set up and to practice and to sound check. And so many of the churches would feed us. Uh, once we got there, and they would provide a sort of a group meal for everyone. And 90% of the time, it was pasta, because pasta is like, you know, pretty cheap to make and, and easy to mass produce. And so we would sit down to a table full of spaghetti and meatballs and red sauce, right? And, uh, and, and inevitably, every single meal, when the meal was done, I would stand up from the table, and I would have about as much sauce on my shirt as I got in my belly. I don't know what my deal was at that point in my life, but I could not wear my meal, or I could not stop wearing my meal. I always had it on me. And my, my instructor, our director, would get so frustrated because then I would be up there singing my little heart out, looking like I just got riddled with bullets, like just like <laughs> sauce all over my perfectly white shirt. And so two or three times of this, and my, the ensemble director had had enough of it. And she said, David, you, I, I would wear a little white undershirt underneath my dress shirt. And she said, you are no longer allowed to wear your shirt when you eat. <laughs> no more. And so if you ever saw us taking our pre-service meal, we'd all be sitting, everybody would look dressed nice, eating dinner. And there I am in my little tidy whitey t-shirt, just like eating my meal and like spilling sauce on my white t-shirt. But, but then I was clean. You know, this whole idea of like whiteness and purity when it comes to our robes was a big deal back then because not just in Judaism and not just in Christianity, but in really all religions, there was this focus on cleanliness and keeping yourself unsoiled and unstained so that you could approach God. So when Jesus said that there are some of you who have not soiled your garments, what he's saying is some of you have not given yourself over to this world in such a way that you can't approach the Father. Purity really mattered. And Jesus said, I will clothe you in white garments. And I want us to notice this morning that Jesus didn't say, you clothe yourself. You make your own white garments. You take those dirty garments and you clean them up and you make them look like they're new again. Or let me teach you how to clothe yourself in white garments. Jesus said none of that stuff because he knows we can't do it. Jesus said, I will clothe you in white garments. I will do this for you. And the white garments represents the righteousness that we need to have a relationship with God the Father. And the truth is, is that you and I couldn't do that for ourselves. We couldn't clothe ourselves in perfection and purity and in righteousness. And we need someone to do that for us. And sometimes we spend so much energy, especially if you're a church, longtime churchgoer, you spend so much of your energy trying to sort of clothe yourself in white garments, don't you? You try so hard to be good. 
But it actually, not only does it not work, it becomes part of the problem. One of my favorite Far Side comic strips. Anybody remember the Far Side comic strips? It was this boy who's going into a building, and on the building's a sign that says, School for the Gifted. It's the smartest, most brilliant kids in town. And he's pushing with all his might, trying to get in for class. And right above his head on the door, it says, Pull. <laughs> And I, I, when I think of that, I think us trying to be so good to earn our way in. And at some point, our religious efforts and our morality and our own pursuit, it actually becomes the problem. It's like trying, it's working against us. Because self-salvation, trying to save yourself by being good and making your robes white, it, not a, it, it actually is a rejection of Jesus' salvation. It's as if you're saying, Jesus, what you did is good, but I got to do the rest. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 you can't clothe yourself in white garments. This is something I will have to do for you. And the Bible talks about the imparted or the imputed righteousness of Jesus, that he lived perfect in our place so that we could be covered in his righteousness or his right robes. Yesterday, my daughters had back-to-back soccer games at Jones Road, and uh, I wasn't allowed to go in because of their safety policy. And so I had an hour with each of them to kill time. And so my nine-year-old, Caroline, her, her time with me was from 12 to 1. So I was like, let's get lunch. Where do you want to get lunch? And because she's so led by the Spirit of God, she said, five guys. And so we went to five guys actually out in Fairmont, which was closer to Jones Road. And we went in and we got our burgers and our fries and we enjoyed them and, and diet soda because we're eating healthy. And, uh, and we, we get back in the car and I'm, I'm backing up and I'm, I'm almost all the way backed up and someone backs up right into me, smashes in the back of my car. And Caroline, poor Caroline, she'd never been in a car when a car got hit. She was, like, freaking out. And, and so I, get, I, I pull over, and I get out of the car, and I look at the back of my car, and thankfully there's no damage. I don't see any damage. And then I look at the back of this other car, and I see a little bit of scrapes, but nothing terrible, no structural damage. And I'm thinking, we're probably okay. And so the young lady gets out of her car, and before I can even say anything to her, she says, don't worry about it. I don't care. <laughs> it's an old car. And it wasn't an old car. It's an old car. It doesn't matter. Who cares? I don't, I don't, I don't. It's fine. It's fine. And I'm thinking, do you have insurance on your car? <laughs> Is that your car? Does the person who owns that car know that you're driving? And so I got back in the car, and I was fine to drive away because there's literally nothing on my car. And so I was like, all right, if you're fine, I'm fine. I don't want to deal with the insurance companies. So we take off, and Caroline's like, why didn't she want to, like, why was she like that? And I said, well, um, it, maybe, she, maybe she doesn't like conflict. I was trying to give her some reasons. You know, I said, maybe she doesn't have insurance on her car, maybe this. But then I said, maybe she has a, a, a lot of points on her record. And, you know, if she gets one more point, she's going to lose her license. And, and uh, actually, there was a point in my life when I was younger where I had rode through too many stop signs, and I got to the point where I was like, i got to take a course so I can, you know, figure this out. But maybe you've been there too. Imagine that you have a lot of points on your license, and, and you're about to lose your ability to drive, which means you'll lose your ability to go to work, which means you're going to lose your ability to provide for your family, and you're stressed out about it, and then somebody walks into a room and says to you, hey, I've been driving for 50 years, and I've never gotten a ticket. My record is completely perfect, not even a parking lot. I, I, I am the one person who comes to a complete stop at every stop sign, and nothing on my record. And here's what I want to do. I want to take your name off of your terrible driving record, and I want to put my name there. And then we'll take your name, and we'll put it on my driving record, and then you take it and you go, and now you have a perfect driving record. No penalty, no punishment, and all the punishment and penalties that you're going to get because of your driving record, I'll absorb it and I'll take it. And in a way, that's exactly what Jesus did for us. He came to us and he said, I see your record of wrongs. 
I see the debt that you owe. I see everything that you've done. And I'll put my name on your record. And I'll take your name and I'll put your name on my record, which, by the way, is perfect. I've never sinned. And now what it means is that if you place your trust and hope fully and solely in Jesus, that when God the righteous judge looks at you this morning, he doesn't look at you as if you've somehow, uh, you're a better version of yourself, you're a cleaned up version of yourself, you're an improved version of yourself, you're a Sunday morning version of yourself. God looks at you as if you lived the life that his son Jesus lived. That's what it means for him to clothe us in white robes. He, speak, he stands right for us. Secondly, Jesus said, I will never blot your name out of the book of life. And what this means is that Jesus secures life for you. And the word never there in the Greek is actually meant to be read never, never. Like never, ever, 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 never will I blot your name out of the book of life. And the fact that the word never is used, because Jesus could have said, I will keep your name in the book of life forever. But instead he said, I will never blot your name out. And actually what that's meant to do is to bring greater emphasis to the security of the believer that if you are in Christ, your name is secure in his book of life. Listen, when I grew up, I used to think that every time I sinned, every time I said something I shouldn't say, every time I looked at something I shouldn't look at, every time I had a thought that I shouldn't have, that God took out his eraser and was like, er, 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 er. You know, there's your name blotted out of my book. Hope you remember to repent for that later, David. Right? And that's kind of like how I lived my whole life. And I thought if I say something wrong and step off this street corner and get hit by a car, oh, God. And I realized there, I, I had no sense of this truth that Jesus secured. Now, I'm not talking about you can live your life however you want. And it doesn't matter. I'm not talking about that. But what I'm saying is for the believer, there is security. That your name is written in the book of life, and God will not blot your name out. And as I was reading this this week, I thought of a story in the Old Testament where Moses, you remember Moses, the great deliverer, brought the Israelites out of Egypt. He goes up Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments, and while he's up there, the Israelites, those idiots, are down there. They're, they're cooking up a plan to make a golden calf so that they can worship this golden calf. And Moses comes down the mountain, and he finds out about this, and God is angry, and Moses is angry. And, and Moses says to the people of, of Israel, this is in Exodus 32, 30, if you want to read it later. He says, you really messed up. <laughs> You've sinned big time. Now I've got to go back up that mountain to God, and I'm going to see if I can make an atonement for your sin. And so Moses goes back up the mountain to the Lord, and he says, these people have sinned a great sin. They've messed up. They've made themselves a god out of gold. But now, he says, to, he's, he's interceding for the people. He says, if you will forgive their sin, please do. But if not, blot my name out of your book so that they can be forgiven. It's incredible. It's noble. It's commendable. But it would never work. Moses couldn't do that for Israel because Moses himself was not without guilt. Moses was born with a sin nature just like you and I. Moses could not have his name blotted out of that book so that their names wouldn't be, but Jesus could, and he did. And when the people in Sardis read this phrase, I will never blot your name out of the book of life, they would have thought of the, in Athens at the exact same time, there was a book where they listed the name of every Roman citizen, and it was a big deal to have your name in this registry. But if you were a Roman citizen and you committed a crime and you were caught and you were convicted and you were executed for your crime, once they executed you for your crime, they would expunge your name from the book. They would, they would open up the book, they would find your name, and they would blot you out. And Jesus, in a sense, allowed his name to be blotted out for our crimes, executed in our place, so that he would never have to blot your name out and my name out, but that he could secure life for us and that our names could be in the book of life.
And then lastly this morning, Jesus also speaks up for you. I'm going to ask the band to come forward. We're going to sing and take communion in just a moment. Yesterday, during Lilia's hour, we went to Costco's because, like, you don't need a reason to go to Costco's. It's just, like, the greatest place. And so we, we went over to Costco's, and as we, were, as we were walking in, of course, Costco's, you have to have a membership card, and I have one, and she doesn't. And so as we, as we walked in, I held up my card, and I said, she's with me, right? That's how it works there. If you ever want to go to Costco's, and you, and you need someone to take you, I'll go with you. I, I need, I'll take any reason to go to Costco's. And, and I'll walk in, and even though you don't have a membership, even though you haven't paid the price, even though you shouldn't be in there, if I walk in with my card and if I vouch for you, if I speak up for you, you get in. You get access because I just spoke up for you. And that's exactly what it means. And I love this verse where Jesus says, I will confess your name before the Father. What an amazing thing that Jesus will speak up for you before God and all of his angels, that Jesus is not ashamed of you, and that he will claim you as his, and that he'll say, she's with me, <laughs> he's with me. Why do we get into heaven? Why do we have the hope of the future kingdom? Because he's speaking up for us. In fact, every day he speaks up for you because it says that he lives to make intercession for you forever, which means he's always praying for you before the Father. But he's not praying for you on the basis of all the good things you've done. He's praying for you on the basis of the good things that he did. He's saying, he's with me, she's with me, and he speaks up for us. You know, the Holy Spirit speaks to us for the Father, but what Jesus does is he speaks to the Father for us. He speaks up for us. One commentary read it, said it this way, Christ will confess before his Father and the angels the names of the faithful. Christ will confess your very name before the Father and say, he's with me, she's with me. Jesus will publicly vindicate the overcomers and, all, and will say that they are his, giving them warrant to enter into the holy city. So in closing, if Jesus is willing to stand right for us, then what that means is that we can stand up in any situation. He stood up for us. In response, we can stand upright and honor him with our lives. We can wake up and receive and remember and repent. If Jesus is the one who secures life for us, then even when our world seems to be falling apart, maybe you feel like our country is falling apart, maybe you feel like your family is falling apart, maybe you feel like your life is falling apart, but if Jesus has secured life for us, eternal life for us, then even in those moments, they cannot steal from us what Jesus has given to us. And even our great enemy, death itself, cannot take from us what Jesus has secured for us. In fact, death for the believer is nothing more than an escort to the promises of God. It brings us right in to eternal life forever. And if God speaks up for you, then who can speak against you? Who can say any word over your life that has more power than what Jesus says about you? Some of you have had some terrible things possibly said over you by people that should have loved you and protected you. Some of you say some pretty terrible things to yourself. But Jesus has something to say too. And he has the final word. And he says, you're mine. And I chose you. And I saved you. And I love you. And I'm going to carry you through, and you're going to endure. And on that day, I will cover you in my white robes. I will not blot your name out of the book of life. And I will come before the Father, and I will confess your name. He's with me. She's with me. Let's pray together this morning.